Hello and welcome to the Albion Obsessed podcast. You join us on this very special edition where we talk to former chairman Dick Knight. Dick, it is an absolute pleasure and a privilege to have you on the show today. How are you doing, my friend? Uh, Well, thanks, guys. I do appreciate that. I'm very well. Um, I'm 84, but I feel like 44. Um, So I'm, I'm doing well and I'm very busy uh involved in football still believe it or not um i'm proud to be you know obviously the president of the albion life president um where we are today is i always knew we could get there we would get there as long as we had the stadium um so i'm only too delighted where we are in the in the hierarchy of football at the moment we can never take anything for granted uh, clearly, we've got some difficult immediate future times coming up while uh, Roberto gets his feet under the table, so to speak. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm very well and very uh, delighted to be invited onto your show. Thank you, Dick. I'm going to say it's a genuine pr- uh, privilege to chat to you tonight. We're going to um, quiz you about some things. I'm sure you've heard many of our questions before, but we'd be, um, as I say, we'd be delighted if you could share your, your wisdom and your insight. Well, I, I should, I hopefully will give you different answers. How about that? Oh, that would be <laughs> lovely. Thank you. Um, but we do like, Dick, to start the uh, show with three questions. We ask these uh, questions to every guest we have um, just to help build... Uh, our understanding of yourself as a football fan. So, Joe, would you like to uh, take it away? Of course. So, um, do you remember your first Albion game? I'm sure you've been to thousands. Um, so, if you can't, don't worry. But do you remember the, the first one, the one that made you fall in love with it? Yeah, my dad came back from the Second World War. That's how old I am. Uh, and I was actually eight years of age then. So I didn't get the privilege of my grandchildren or any of you guys who may have gone when you were, you know, like I took my eldest grandchild when he was 18 months old. Uh, so I wanted to get him into the seagull, seagull's ways as soon as possible. And the rest of my grandchildren along the similar lines. But uh my dad came back from the Second World War where he survived it. He was a pilot. Um, and he told me many years later that one of the things that kept him going was taking his little boy to the Albion because he was an Albion fan himself before the war, before the Second World War. So when he got, he didn't get back because he was in the Far East uh, until 1946. So, you know, and there we were bottom of Division Three South, or near the bottom. Um, and he took me, you know, to the ground and we went to the East Terrace. And I remember, you know, um, going through the turnstile, but going up this slope to the top of the terraces through this, you know, muddy and sort of rock-strewn approach to the terraces. But as I crested the top of the terrace, I looked down and saw this green sward of grass with little figures running around in blue and white stripes and we were playing Mansfield Town right um and we believe it or not won this game 5-1 although we were near the bottom of the league uh and that's you know that was I was I was open-eyed in wonderment at this incredible panoply this of of sporting activity and you know immediately I was in love with the Albion that was it you know uh, so my first game was in um, 1946 so that tells you how old I am and um, you know and I've you know I've probably seen an average of 30 games a season because I've been to loads of, you know, I've been virtually to every ground where the Albion have played uh, away. So do the math. You know, it's got to be 2,000 games or something like that, um, at least. Um, And then, of course, here we are, you know, at the 
you know, when imagining year after year when I was a fan, I started as a boy fan, you know, we were sort of scraping around the bottom of Division Three South. The idea of ever getting out of that league at the time was remote, but we we gradually um, we signed a player when I was in the first season I was there or second season called Johnny McNichol, who was a, a, a Scottish player who played for Newcastle. You know, we're in the third level. He came for, to Brighton from the first, he was a regular player in the first 11 at Newcastle, but they just bought this star player, Len Shackleton, at that time for a world record fee of 13,000 pounds, 13,000 pounds. That was the whole fee, not the day's wages of what some players get these days. Um, and he came to Brighton because um, in those days, I mean, I'm probably, you know, boring you, but in those days, the, the clubs had the contract to the players but they only paid them in the during the season. They didn't pay them anything in the close season, but they kept their contract. So the players couldn't go off to another club. Anyway, he was told, Johnny McNick, he told me this years later. I mean, I never met him until I was the chairman of the Albion. And um, he told me that he was called into the boardroom by the Newcastle chairman and said, Johnny, um, you know, I'm bringing in Len Shackleton from the deadly rival Sunderland and you you won't be playing in the first team. I've got two clubs that are already interested in you. One is Manchester City, who were in, the, you know, the first, as it was then, the first division. And there's this other club called Brighton and Hove Albion um, down on the south coast. And so Johnny says... Yeah, but they're in the League Three, Division Three, aren't they? So he says, yeah. But those days, all the players got the same wages because it was a maximum wage. Um, so he was reassured by the chairman of Newcastle that he would be paid the maximum wage by Brighton. So his wife, he just got married, and his wife said, well, Brighton, he was a Scot, and he was from the north of Scotland somewhere. So, you know, she quite fancied the idea of living in Brighton rather than Manchester. So she persuaded him to go and talk to the Brighton chairman after him talking to Man City. And, of course, basically, um, what, what clinched it for him to come to Brighton was that the Brighton chairman at the time was a builder. He had a building company, Alec Witcher, I think was his name, Alec Witcher. And he said to Johnny, um, how about this? I will pay you a labourer's wages in the summer, you know, on top of I mean, because uh, there's no football. So most of the players had to get a job anyway, you know. But um, so he was guaranteed this wages, which was probably more than he got from the football club. And he didn't have to turn up. So he came to play at Brighton. And he was absolutely brilliant player. He stayed with us, I think, three seasons or two seasons. He went to Chelsea for a then virtually record fee. The next season, they won the division, the league, for the first and only time until until Mourinho turned up sixty years later, right? And he was a regular in that. He was played full. They had forty-two games in that in that at that time. Johnny played 41 of them. So he was that good. He was immediately into the Chelsea team. So, you know, my early days were of watching a truly, I would put him in my all-time Albion team. He was that good. And the, let's face it, there's some great players in that all-time Albion team. So, uh, yeah, sorry, that's the answer to your first question, Joe. <laughs> that, was a, that was so fascinating listening to that. I'm not going to lie, I, I was engrossed in everything you were saying there dick so what we were saying there with uh with over two thousand plus games you must have gone to you just picked something johnny would have made your your first uh your uh, album 11 you know any other standout names during your time as a, as a fan or even as chairman well you know uh i have to go to um 
probably the best signing I ever made, which was Bobby Zamora, you know, without a doubt. Um, um, and so he is up there. So is Glenn Murray. Uh, I bought Glenn Murray against the wishes of the then manager. Uh, I insisted on us buying him. I knew what I was looking at. I paid 300,000 to Rochdale. We were a League One club. And 300,000 is a lot of money for a League One club to play a League Two, to pay a League Two club. But I knew what I was looking at. Um, and uh, I went with the scouts to watch Glenn several times and I knew how good he was. I knew he would play at the top level. But the same with Bobby, because with Bobby, he was more of a talismanic character because he... You know, we saw him, Mickey Adams and I, and uh, when we were looking at another player and we were coming back up the M4 and I said to Mickey, um, keep an eye on that, you know, that guy from Bristol Rovers reserves. Have him watched. And uh, about a month later, six weeks later, he said, um, I've got that boy, we've got him in on loan. He's going to be with us for a, a month. Well, in that time, Bobby scored six goals, right? And and at the end of it, we obviously wanted to extend his loan. And he said, no, he said, I'm, I'm he, he's such a good professional, Bobby Zamora. He said, no, my club is Bristol Rovers. And I'm sure the manager, who was um, Ian Holloway, of all people, will have seen that I've scored six goals and will hopefully will give me a chance because he hadn't played in Bristol Rovers' first team at that time. And he never did. Because what happened, so Mickey and I were obviously quite upset that he didn't want to stay with us. But I said to Mickey and the board that I'm going to try and sign Zamora at the end of the season, um, which I did. And the, they turned they turned me down flat because they wanted believe it or not, a quarter of a million pounds, Bristol Rovers, for a player that had never been in their first team. And what it was, they 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 produced in the previous three or four years a raft of good strikers. So they, they were selling them for a quarter of a million pounds. So they thought, you know, I can get a quarter of a million pounds for Zamora. This is what the chairman thought. And... You know, I said to him, don't be mad. You know, I'm, we're in League Two. We can't pay that sort of money for a player. Um, so I said, so I made an offer, um, which was, uh, I went up to 100,000, right, which was way above what I was planning to spend. Um, but And he's turned me down, the chairman. So I said to Mickey, you know, during... They'll be back. They'll be back. They'll come back because I've offered them a hundred thousand quid. You know, which is. Um, so we get to the pre-season. If you all recall, we were allowed some friendlies a season. We got to within one week before the start of the season in a friend with a friendly. That was the only time we were allowed to go there, other than play, playing league. You know, the the actual games. Um, so in that game, Gary Hart, you know, we were desperate to get Zamora. And I'd said to Mickey Adams, they'll be back. Bristol Rose, the chairman, Jeff Dun Dunsford, will be on to me. And so we played this. We got all the way through to a week before the start of the season. Gary had to play up front because we didn't have a centre forward against Des Walker. It was against Knott's Forest. And he was the England centre half. And, and Gary scored two goals in this game. And Mickey came into the boardroom afterwards, where, you know, boardroom of Whitley, what a joke, you know, it was about as big as the room I'm in now. And uh, he said, he said, well, Mr. Chairman, so, um, yeah, what happened to that bloke Zamora? I thought he was going to be with us by now. <laughs> so I said to him, Mick, you know, you're absolutely right. Um, it was Saturday afternoon. I said, if I don't get a call from the Bristol Rovers chairman by 10 o'clock Monday morning, I will get on to him. But that I will be then at a huge disadvantage 
because I'm chasing them. At quarter to 10 on the Monday morning, I get this phone call from Bristol Rovers, from the chairman. It was incredible. So Jeff Dunsford says to me, um, Dick, are you still in, interested in the lad Zamora? So I said, thinking quickly, um, I'm not sure. I don't know. I'll have to speak to my manager. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm playing it sort of nonchalantly, and I'll ring you back when I've got hold of him in you know ten minutes time or so. I knew they were all in. So because I never even rang Mickey because I knew what his answer would be. He would have bitten my arm off, right? So I ring rang the chairman of Bristol Rovers back, and uh, I said, yeah, he thinks. Um, yeah, he he like he he still quite is quite interested in him. So um, I said, so I've offered you at hundred. He said, oh no, he said the price is two fifty, two fifty. So I said to him, I said, why are you wasting my time? You know, I've told you five six weeks ago that you know you're just annoying me now because you're trying to get a quarter of a million pounds for him. And um, he said, well, you know. I said, is he even going to figure in your squad, you know, for the coming season? Because he said, Ian doesn't really, you know, reckon him as a striker. He thinks he might be a left-sided midfield player, right? So I'm sort of like, thank God we didn't have Zoom in those days because he would have seen me, you know, hooting with laughter, you know, the idea that he was a midfield player. Um I said, look, is it so? Is it your manager who can't make up his mind? So he said, yeah. I said, give me his number. Can I ring it? Would you mind if I ring it? You know. So I got on the phone to Holloway. Oh dear, as you know, with his Bristolian accent, and um, he said, you know, he said that's young Samora. He'll never make it as a striker, but I think he could be, you know, a midfield player, left-sided midfield player. So I said, well, my manager, Mickey, you know Mickey Adams, he's got this thing about he thinks he could be a striker. You know, so, like he scored six goals in six games, for God's sake. What more did Holloway want? You know? So he said, I he said, I said, but it's ridiculous. Your chairman wants a quarter of a million. I'm not paying that. So he said, he said, um, well, what would you pay? I said, well, I've already, doesn't he, he said, because he told me that you'd pay 100,000. I said, that's the figure I'm prepared to pay. He said, he said, I'd go for that. I said, well, will you speak to your chairman? Because Mickey wants to give the lad a chance, you know, as a striker. And because I'm, all of this has gone on. Mickey Adams doesn't know that I'm having all these conversations. So the end. Dunsford, 10 minutes later, rings me and said, OK, we'll take 100, you know. Um, and I, I gave him a, a pretty generous sell-on fee percentage because I just was desperate to get this con you know, signing over the line. And then I phoned Mickey. and He didn't know anything about it up to then. And I said, guess what? I said, you know, Zamora's coming in uh, 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 later up this afternoon for a fitness test. And he, he virtually dropped the phone, Mickey, you know, because he was so delighted. And um, that's how we got Bobby Zamora. But it was, you know, he turned out to be, well, he was even better than we expected. He was, a, I mean, the, I think what he symbolised on the pitch, what we were doing off the pitch in terms of team, you know, to get our, uh, our, our, our club, on the right road for the future, uh, obviously get the stadium. But he was a talismanic player, Bobby, because, you know, Mickey wanted to play initially 4-4-2. And, you know, and I said, well, he tried, he started out playing 4-4-2 and it didn't work because we crowd, you know, we sort of were too defensive. Uh, and And Bobby at that time, uh, hadn't really started, you know. It was it was basically he he, he wanted to play four four two, but we we crowded the midfield and and didn't really give 
of sort of attacking uh, a, a speed of, of response, a sort of, you know, on the counter type attacking. So we, we, we then to 4 3 3, but really we played 4 5 1. All you had to do is get the ball up to Bobby Zamora and he would hold it up and bring other players into it, whether it was Gary Hart on the right or Bozzy, you know, Paul um, uh, Bozzy, Bozzy, left winger from Fulham. Um, and, you know, so we really, we were so tight defensively because we had five across the middle and four at the back. And Bobby, <laughs> that was all we needed. And, um, you know, so he was, uh, he was, Bobby was a, a wonderful, uh, so he, he inspired all the other players to play at their very best because he was so good. So he was a very inspirational leader on the pitch. And that, that team was full of leaders, um, absolutely full of leaders. And um, I mean, they won two leagues in a row, didn't they? I mean, that's how good they were. Um, more recently, obviously, one of the players that has stood out for me at the Amex is was Vincente, you know, the Spanish winger who only was there with us for a, a, about a year. Uh, he was absolute quality. You know, he could thread a pass through three or four defenders, you know, and he did that regularly, but. He, what happened with him, he, his wife didn't like living in England and uh, he really wanted to play. I mean, we were in the championship then, but he really wanted to play in the Premier League and he was obviously good enough to play in the Premier League. Uh, in the end, he went back to Spain. Um, you know, there's been some wonderful defenders. Uh, going back to when I was young, a, a player called Roy Jennings who came from Swindon, uh, wonderful defender, um, Gary Stevens, uh, and of course, I mentioned, you know, Lawrence and Ward, um, who were, you know, at their time, they were world-class players playing in League th in Division 3 uh, South. That's how good they were. I remember in my ad agency, you know, we had offices all over Europe, and I was telling German people that we had a player in at Brighton in League Three who was as good as Beckenbauer, and he was because he did the same thing as Beckenbauer. He pl he played in the back and brought the ball forward, you know, and often went to the opposition penalty area. Nobby Horton, who, as you know, became a one of you know one of my many managers. Um, told me that when he was, you know, he was the captain, he was the anchor midfield player in that team. He said, um, you know, <coughs> Lauro would sail past him and, you know, and he, he used to shout to, to Horton, lock it up at the back, skip, you know, words to that effect. In other words, you, you stay back because I'm going forward, so you make sure that we... And of course, they were. A, that was a wonderful team. Um, and of course, Ward was as good in his time as Zamora was in his time. They were both outstandingly good players, um, and deserved to play both of them. At, you know, twenty games for England, each of them. They they deserved to be in the England team regularly. Uh, that neither of them were, and and it's because in Zamora's case, you know, he went he he. If you remember, he he his best season at the top level was when he was at Fulham, and they got to the Europe Europa Cup final, and Roy Hodgson, who was the manager of Fulham at the time, I mean, Bobby had had this ankle injury, and uh, he asked him to play, you know, on um, with with painkillers. And a jab, you know, whatever, and to to get through at least a half uh, of the game, um, to try and nick a goal and then you know defend it. Um, but what he did that, Bobby, but it it stopped him going to South Africa in the World Cup. 
Otherwise, he would have been England's centre forward in the World Cup. Any other players that I mean, there's loads. Um, obviously, I've got there's loads, but I think I don't know how long this podcast goes on. How long have you got? For, for you as long as you as long as you like to speak. Honestly, we're just absolutely captivated by hearing these stories and that's exactly what our fans want to hear as well and um, so we, we really appreciate it. Yeah, my dear wife has just brought me a nice cup of coffee so i'm oh, ready I'm, I'm i'm here to go for a while yeah <laughs> oh that's what we like to hear fantastic um now dick you've already mentioned it to to us off air but just for the benefit of our listeners and viewers, if you had to pick one of your top Brighton shirts, what would it be, please? Well, um, for, for um, listeners, Tom is sitting in front of uh, the red and black skin shirt. Um, presumably they can't see it. Um, uh, are they, they, can, just they can see it on YouTube, um, but we oh, also okay. do it on Spotify. Well, so. That was one of my favourite shirts um, for two reasons. One, Bobby Warrior, he scored a lot of away goals uh, in all the time. He wasn't just a hometown, you know, home ground player. Uh, and he's, he, I remember him scoring two wonderful goals, one at Berry, an un- a sad club that went under where he volleyed it over the goalie's head from about 40 yards out. Uh, it came over his shoulder and he volleyed it. And then he scored another great goal where he ran from the halfway line at Chesterfield uh, and scored, you know, another great goal um, wearing that. And it was very, it was almost as popular as the blue and white striped shirt when it was out. And then, um, obviously, the... Um, the one that Tom is wearing, which is the centenary shirt with that wonderful skin logo, the ellipse. And I was I was saying that we uh, when I met up with the skin guys, we were based in Brighton, obviously, and I wanted a, a local company, but I knew that they were distributed worldwide by Sony, you know, and Norman was their top star. And um so I persuaded them in that first meeting to drop the word records from their logo, you know, and it was because I said we'll get far more publicity, you know, with just having skin on it because we are what it says on the shirt, you know, just like um, that paint product, whatever, I can't remember. I'm in advertising, but I can't remember that, what the brand was. So um, not very effective advertising, but, you know, in our case, we were what it said on the shirt. And one of the, it, so we started off the season and about the second away match was at Barnet. This is in League Two. Um, and guess what? They were sponsored by the magazine Loaded, right? So um, there they were in the tunnel before the game. The players that you see on television, they're kind of snarling at each other. Occasionally, one of them knows. And normally there's a lot of mass, macho posturing, you know, going on in the tunnel before the game. In this case, they're all looking at each other and they all started. There was this amazing amount of laughter coming from the tunnel. And when they came onto the pitch, the players walking alongside each other, they're all killing themselves laughing. And I'd ar- arrange, this is at Barnet, I'd arrange for the photographers to take a joint picture of all the players together rather than each team on its own, you know. So right across this, there's this wonderful, you know, uh, picture, landscape picture of the teams, both teams, skint loaded, skint loaded. And of course that got in the Sunday papers, several of the Sunday papers. It was just a way, I mean, it it kind of uh, symbolized the way I felt about football. You know, um, I love football and it, we should be, happy about it not in a somber mood which Albion fans understand understandably were when I took over everyone's spirits were down uh, the players spirits were down all the staff spirits were down and I wanted to change all that and I think the skin sponsorship was incredibly significant and you know and that, that, that lasted nine years, which is a long time for a sponsorship, a shirt sponsorship. 
Um, and Norman, of course, um, wore that shirt from the beginning. He, you know, I remember concerts in Japan. He was in front of, you know, 20,000 people. This, one of the standout ones was <coughs> at the Copacabana Beach in Rio in front of a quarter of a million fans wearing that shirt. Um, and then he's, Norman has uh, kept that tradition going. As you, most of you know, he launched this season's shirt. Brilliant, that continuity. And there's Norman still doing his thing. Um, you know, on Brighton Beach recently, where I was there, I, I mean, it's a big pal of mine. Um, wonderful, you know, and there's the Albion being part of his community, which to me has always been one of the driving forces of what I wanted to do when I was chairman. And I'm very proud of Albion and the community and how we built that up. Um, anyway, that's so another story. You mentioned um, just as you were speaking then about the the times in the nineties and the sombre mood that was around before you took over. Um, so can we talk about that a little bit? Um, just like your perspective on how it was for you as a fan watching on, and sort of maybe what drove you to want to take over. Um, well, Joe, it was really uh, I was watching mainly at long distance because I was in America a lot at that time in my company. I was, well, I was backwards and forwards across the Atlantic all the time. Um, one year I had 88 immigration stamps in my passport, which showed you that I was in America three times every fortnight. So I would often fly into Heathrow on a Saturday morning, um, come down to my home in Hove and go walk across to the Goldstone. And I could see this whole thing, you know, deteriorating in a depressing way. And uh, but I wasn't, you know, really active in it. I, I couldn't take an active role in it. I was just um, getting more and more angry about it. Um, and then Liam Brady, who was the, at that time still the manager, uh, approached me through my brother-in-law. Um, and asked me if I could help. He could see what Archer and Co were up to. And, uh, you know, I, he asked me if I could help. And at that time, I couldn't because my wife had become ill with cancer, my first wife. And, and uh, so I couldn't do anything about it And uh, because obviously she was the absolute priority. And, um, and then a few months after he, she died, he came back to me. Uh, by this time, it was, uh, eight, I think it was April 96, um, and said, Dick, you know, this has got gone. By that time, he'd already resigned, you know, because he, he wasn't taking any more of it uh, by the way they were running the club. And, um, you know, basically, he said to me, it's now or never. If you can help, um, then we, we need that help now. And uh, so I actually uh, suggested, you know, to Liam that he, do you remember when the, we had that last game against York and the fans came on the pitch and the, all the Sunday papers reported it as football hooliganism? That really riled me because it wasn't football hooliganism. It was fans protesting about the way their club was being run. And that's what really, you know, I thought I'm going to get involved in this and I'm going to save our club with the help of the fans. We're all in this together. And um, so that was the, the what spurred me. It was Liam and I knew because initially my consortium consisted of um, myself, Liam, you know, who was going to be the director of football, and my financial guy from my agency, my ad agency in London, um, who was, always, he, he and I were at school together in Brighton, well, in Hove, Hove Grammar School. And he was a big Brighton fan as well. He used to, I used to meet him on the East Terrace, you know, and, uh, please excuse me. And he, um, 
so he Bob Pinnock, his name, and so the consortium was me, Liam, and and Bob Pinnock, uh, and Martin Perry joined later. You know that was several months later. Although Martin was involved because he was working for McAlpine at that time, and to be honest, McAlpine, they want they knew there was a new stadium needed to be built, and. They didn't care who the chairman was, in a sense. They just wanted to build a stadium. So they were interested. Martin worked for them, and he was doing his job. Um, and I later appointed him as our chief executive because he like, he knew all about stadium planning, which is so he was a very good acquisition uh, for us, for me. And um, so the point is that the that consortium of me, Liam, and uh, Bob Pinnock, that was it, you know, and... Uh, what happened, of course, Liam then got approached by David Dean, who was the vice chairman at Arsenal, but was very much the man in charge of Arsenal, who came to him and then he came to me and he wanted Liam to take over the job of director of youth development at Arsenal. Well, it's a bit like, you know, me... Uh, being asked to go back to Brighton when I'd been somewhere other club. You know, of course I'd go. Liam was being asked to be director of worldwide youth development. So, of course, I didn't stand in his way, and nor should I have done. Um, he And he, David Dean, <coughs> became a very good friend of mine because, you know, he knew what I was giving up, what we were giving up. But I, you know, so it was really initially... Just me and Bob Pinnock, and uh, and then Martin, as I say, joined, you know, in that interim uh, period while we were getting under the table, um, beginning to put some plans in place. We were one of the first clubs to embrace the, uh, you know, the the internet revolution, and um, we had a website way ahead of most clubs, um, and I, and a guy called Ian Andrews who also lives in Brighton, who worked in my agency, was became an, an IT expert. Um, we employ, I employed him. And so we were streets ahead of, ahead of most clubs on that. So I was bringing new ideas into the game. I knew that the conventional press media, you know, was, was on its way out. I mean, it would, it would, it would not be as predominant as it, as it was then, I knew it was going to be, the TV was going to just grow and grow and grow in terms of TV rights. All of that I was predicting long before it happened because I, one of my clients was Rupert Murdoch in my ad agency. I, I did the advertising for The Times and The News of the World, which were two papers in his, and the other two, The Sun and The Sunday Times, were handled by another ad agency. So when he came and started talking about launching Sky, they he talked to people like me about the best way to go around launching Sky. And I was one of the people that said to him, forget about taking on the BBC in news or drama or comedy. Sport is where you should go, and football in particular, because I knew all about football, and I knew that they were giving away what limited TV coverage there was in football, the people running football didn't have a clue what it was worth. And I did because I came from the commercial, you know, TV background. Um, so it was a, a, you know, incredible uh, time of change. And, uh, but it, I, I would say singly, it was Liam Brady that I owe it to, and all Albion fans that owe it to, blame him for getting me involved <laughs> and thank god he did because uh who knows what would have happened if he hadn't have done so um so dick we talked a little bit or you talked a little bit about some of those happy with dean memories especially with the likes of bobby zamora and later glenn murray um but there are two years that often get somewhat overlooked and maybe it's because we played home games uh in kent and they were the years at gillingham um so talk to us a little bit about the place, those in, Kent, the place in Kent that dare not speak its name, as John yes. Bain called it. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how much pressure 
was there on you to get the club back to Brighton at the time? Obviously, fans and players making such a huge trip, very difficult. I mean, we chatted to uh, Brian Horton um, in the summer and he gave us his views on it, how, how tricky it was. So, you know, what was your perspective on it? Well, um, <clears throat> first of all, um, you know, when we had that last game at the Goldstone, it was pretty, you know, catastrophic from the club's point of view, apart from the result of the game. But in terms of leaving the ground and having to travel, you know, a million miles to Gillingham, I mean, surely the furthest ground share in the history of football worldwide, let alone certainly in England. And um, so I, you know, but what, what not not that many people realise is that the, F, the football league at that time did nothing to help us. They What they did, what they imposed. So I've tried to organise a ground share at Crawley which is obviously far more convenient for all of us. And we would offer Crawley um, a 10,000 capacity ground. They'd just built the Broadfield Stadium, which held 4,000. And I was offering them a 10,000 stadium, which we would pay for, and, and but their council turned it down. The club were only too happy. And the council turned it down for political reasons. You know, they were all die-hard left-wing socialists from the old era. And, of course, Brighton was one of the major towns that went Labour, certainly Hove, when Hove went Labour in that 1997 election, that's when Blair said, we've won, you know, because when Hove went Labour, so they were new Labour people in Brighton and Hove, and it was nothing to do with football. It was to do with two sets of the same political party going up against, so that fell through, right? So um, but what the FA did, what the Football League, not the FA, did, they said, right, you've got to play at, um, and also Millwall, I tried to organise the ground share there, and I got on very well with their chairman, you know, Yo Papitis, uh, and that would have been also a million times better than going to Gilliam. But the, the, the league turned that down, because they wanted us to go to Gillingham. They said, made that arrangement. I didn't make it. It was Archer that made that arrangement. Um, but then to cap it all, the, the Football League, in their wisdom, said to me, um, we're going to impose a performance bond on you, a half a million pound performance bond. And if you don't come back to Brighton in th within three years, we're going to keep that £500,000, right? Now, can you imagine, this was in 1997 when, you know, and I had to give them a half a million pounds to sit in their bank account, you know, and that was their way of helping Brighton. Unbelievable, you know. And um, so that made me even more focused, as if I wasn't already, on getting the club back to Brighton. I hated going to Gillingham, as all of us did. But we, you know, I went there because that's what we had to do. Scally was never there because he was always at their away matches, which were obviously Gillingham were playing wherever they were playing. So I never actually had any dealings with Scally. The one who did that deal was Bellotti. And no doubt he was patted on the back by Archer for doing it because it was almost as far away, um, you know, from Brighton as it was possible to be, except that there was a character called Michael Knighton who was, you know, no relation to me, but Michael Knighton, who was the chairman of Carlisle United, right? And he tried to take over and almost succeeded in taking over Manchester United. Knighton did, right? Those of you who know your football will know this guy, you know, almost succeeded in taking over Manchester United. But when he didn't, he said, I've got a good idea. He said, to really make some publicity, why don't we offer you a ground share at Carlisle? <laughs> I said, yeah, Michael, 
it will be good for publicity once. But then, you know, what do you expect my fans to do? Traits all the way out to Carlisle for a home game and then play the... I mean, even at Gillingham, we had away games that were nearer to Brighton than our home games. All the London ones were nearer to Brighton. I mean, it's bizarre. So I absolutely determined to get the club back as quickly as possible. And I remember when you drove into Gillingham, it said, welcome to Gillingham. And I used to say, yeah, you are bloody welcome to Gillingham as far as I'm concerned. You know, and, and so Brian came in, Brian Horton came in in very difficult circumstances there. Uh, and he started rebuilding the team, you know, which is what I wanted, obviously. And we started beginning to perk up. Um, and by the time, so I managed to, I mean, this is where the fans came into it, you know, bring Albion back to Brighton. The council weren't in the slightest bit bothered about it. They thought Brighton would just die. The Albion would die at Gillingham. That's what they thought. And they weren't bothered. It was only when we started showing the power of the fans in voting terms is when the politicians all of a sudden woke up to the fact that here was a lot of voters and they are angry, you know, and then they started getting involved. But up to that point, Brighton and Hope, were well, they were two separate councils in, in the early days. Um, you know, so they, they weren't interested in the Albion at all. There was no culture, football culture, in this part of the world, the way there is in the north. And uh, so I had to uh, fight that lethargy uh, with numbers and action and innovation. And that's where the fans were brilliant. You know, so many good, interesting people in the fan and every club got it. But I made I made a point of finding out what we had. So I did when I one of the first things I did when I took over was to do a survey of the fan base, a uh, where they were, where they lived, because I was certain that only about probably you know under fifty percent actually came from Brighton and Hove because of the you know the uh, catchment area of the Albion being the only at that time league club in in Sussex, um, but also the demographic of the and what they did. So you know what we went we went from <clears throat> I was going to say astronauts, but it wasn't astronauts. It was accountants, but we did have zoologists, and in between we had rocket scientists. An amazing range of people, you know, who's their 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 daily work was something that was incredibly could be valuable to us. So we had this work. Um, this group of fans who were actively willing to help. And then when you started making people aware that, you know, we, we want to use this because we've got that. I, the other thing I did was I told the fans what I was doing. You know, we had various meetings at the Hovetown Hall, <clears throat> the place on the seafront, you know, um, What's that club? Not the Comedia, but the, you know the Concord on the seafront. Um, I remember David Davis, my good friend David Davis from the FA, who came down and thought the fans were going to tear him limb from limb. Uh, but but he was the one who helped set up the mediation that eventually unseated, um, you know, Archer. David Davis. The the FA were useless. Graham Kelly, who was the chief executive at the time, was only interested in the publicity of standing on the. We had two or three FA meetings where they were trying to sort things out, and they just let Archer get away with it. But David Davis was sitting there, was aware that something had to be done, and uh, in the end, we went to mediation. And I mean, again, unheard of in football history. So they put this proposition, an, an archer, that each of you will have a mediator and you won't actually meet each other. The mediators will meet and that's how they do it. 
So I agreed to it. I thought it was a good idea. Archer thought I can get some publicity out of this or whatever. So he did it. Uh, he agreed to do it. And these two mediators that, that we were given had both just come off a diplomatic uh, mediation about land in the Gaza Strip. You know, an incredibly um, volatile Middle Eastern mediation. And then they came to the Albion mediation. I mean, it's, you know, we were sort of in all sorts of ways breaking new ground. It was just incredible. And, uh, and the final straw with them um, was, do you, any of you remember this program that Meridian Television put out, the, the future of the Goldson or the end of the Goldson or whatever? They put out a live program on a Sunday afternoon from their studios in um, Southampton. I think it's Meridian or whatever the ITV company is concerned. Do any of you remember that? So there's a vague recollection. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure I vaguely recall it, and I'm pretty sure okay, someone. Well, this it. what happened. They decided that they, you know, someone had a bright idea of putting on this live show from the studio with Albion fans there, and you know, having me and Archer in the studio, um, telling them what the was going on in the mediation. And this was right in the middle of the mediation, which was not a good idea. And I said to uh, the mediators, no way should we go on this program. I know how the media operate, you know. And uh, so they agreed. And on the Friday afternoon, the show was on Sunday afternoon. On the Friday afternoon, Archer and I signed an affidavit saying that we would not appear on this show which was countersigned and witnessed by these two mediators. <coughs> Cut to the Sunday afternoon, two o'clock, right? In the studio the, the, in Southampton, um, welcome to the show. Here we, we have a range of Brighton supporters. Unfortunately, um, we invited Mr Knight, you know, um, to come on the show, but he declined. However, I'm glad to say over to our Granada studios in Manchester, cut to this archer sitting in the studio with a with an eye patch on. He couldn't make it up. He was he's got an eye patch on for the sympathy boat. <laughs> and so this this compare of this show was all over Archer saying, you know, thanks, thank you, Bill, for you know, come, agreed to come on our show. And they obviously, Archer thought, well, I've really scored a, you know, the Albion fans in the studio were virtually all booing and hissing. They, they, they were just kept under control, really. But I can tell you, he did not do himself any favours with the mediators because they thought, if this guy can sign a sworn affidavit and two days later break it, he's capable of doing anything which, of course, he was. So, you know, he he completely undermined his position by doing that. But it was hilarious, because who represented the Brighton club? Guess. Scully. He came on the show representing the Brighton club. It was just... And, you know, and the reason he was there was because his wife at, at that time um, was the daughter of a Brighton legend. That's what they said on the show, right? So people in the audience, you know, the Brighton fans are in, they, they were saying, well, who is the legend? And so the presenter said his name is Peter O'Donnell or some name like that that no one had ever heard of. And it turned out, I mean, I would sort of vaguely remember this name, and it turned out he played 16 games for Brighton over a, about two seasons or three seasons. According to the Southern TV people, he was a legend, an Albion legend. I know they give that title out frequently to, you know, all sorts of people, including me. But in this case, he really wasn't a legend. But that was their justification for having Scully there. And um, all he was doing was promoting the cause of Gillingham. 
you know, and how generous they were to allow Brighton to go and play there. I mean, you couldn't make it up except there it was and the evidence of your eyes was there. Anyway, um, that's the end of that bit. What else do you want to talk about? <laughs> Honestly, I couldn't, I couldn't have got anything worse than having to deal with him. Both of them, to be honest. I don't know how you, how you managed it. Well, I think what happened, uh, Aaron, was that um, he used to call me a chancer because it was his phrase for, um, you know, soft southern bastards, as he, you know, basically felt all people from the south of England were somehow not as good as him, you know, and strong as him. And he was a tough northern businessman who knew how to, you know, uh, put a shovel in the ground and all that, you know, he was a tough, he, he thought he was real macho guy, you know, and he, but he was a tough and, you know, I'm sure he wasn't quite a good businessman, but, uh, you know, he could but hide behind a corkscrew as far as I was concerned in terms of, you know, trusting what he said, because you, he'd agree something. I mean, the negotiations that I had with him before this mediation thing started, I mean, that was, four months after the negotiations had actually started, because I would meet with him um, in London and um, he'd agree something. And then, so we'd like, yes, you can see the books. Uh, and then he would not make them available. So you'd meet up with him again and say, well, no, I didn't really agree. I didn't, I didn't definitely agree to that. He'd make it up as he went along. He was just stalling to hope that I'd go away. But he, t he picked the wrong person there because I wasn't going away. The more I dealt with him, the more I was certain I was going to win, ultimately get rid of him, you know. Um, so, but it was a, it was pretty, I mean, in all the ad business, the advertising business is a very, you know, highly competitive business. And it's very, you know, it's high octane sort of thing. But in all my time in advertising, which is 30 years, working at the very top level in London and New York, I never met anybody as devious as Bill Archer in all that time in business. He was that bad. You, know, you couldn't trust what he said. It was just impossible. And he kept making these promises to the fans. But after two or three times when it, nothing happened, of course, they, they all distrusted him. And Bellotti was just a figurehead. He never was involved in any of the discussion in negotiations I had with Archer because Archer treated him like a puppet. You know, you'll speak when I when I when I tell you to speak. And he was the one who was getting all the flat down here because Archer installed him from being a you know an MP because he thought he had power. You know, in the corridors of power on the South Coast, but Bellotti didn't have any power. Um, and he was pretty, he was, a, he was inept, aspiring to be incompetent. Or the other way around, he was incompetent, aspiring to be inept. Either way, he was pretty um, useless as a chief executive. The only way he dealt with it was by batting people the whole time, you know. So countless Albion fans, certainly people like the Argus seller who'd sold the Argus for 30 years at the Goldstone was banned for some reason, maybe because the paper was criticising the club, um, you know, which they don't do now. But, but in those days, there was a lot to criticise the club about. <laughs> um, you know, uh, anyway, the point is that... Uh, you know, he was a very tricky customer to deal with. You just had to hang on and but not hang on. I mean, I was, you know, it was quite clear to him. He realised that he was going to lose in the end. Uh, he knew I wasn't going away. And, uh, you know, he ceremoniously, I gave him 50, a cheque for £56.25 and... Greg Stanley, because they set up this company called 4A565 with a £100 equity, only £100 worth of share value. And 56.25% was owned by Archer and the other 43% or whatever 
was owned by Greg Stanley. And I gave both of them checks for that amount. And Archer never cashed his, but Greg Stanley did. <laughs> I mean, it's just brilliant. Archer, even Archer wasn't going to cash that because it was a, a PR, you know, uh, own goal by by um, Greg Stanley to do that, uh, obviously. Um, anyway, interesting times. 